So where, where do you have it? Where do you have it? Which is what? Yeah, that's where I have this as well. Okay. So we'll start in chapter 2, verse 3 this morning. Okay. Uh, this evening. All right. Uh, we've marked, we marked that the theme of uh, 1 John is the tests of life or the tests of eternal life. So John is giving us tests by which we can gain confidence that we have eternal life. And these tests are also designed to expose those who are false teachers. All right. So the tests of life, so that the readers could gain assurance as they see themselves by God's grace meeting the tests, and through the tests, able to discern those who fail the test, that is, the false teachers. In each test, in the first of three sections or divisions, is a test of fellowship. We define fellowship as sharing in the life of God. Fellowship is sharing in the life of God. So the first test of eternal life is the test of fellowship, and specifically the test of fellowship that is sharing in the life of God. With each test, John begins with what we call the conduct. Proper conduct. Eternal life and the test of eternal life involves proper conduct. And the first thing we saw then was that uh, eternal life meant walking in the light. I don't know if that sounds familiar from chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, walking in the light. The second conduct required of passing the test was confessing sin. Can you read this? Bill, can you see this? Walking in the light. Second, confessing sin. Now we come to the third test in terms of our conduct, and that's loving believers. Loving believers. And that's where we are uh, this evening. Starting on, whoops, let's make that, keeping his commandments, obeying Christ. Fourth is loving believers, obeying Christ got ahead of myself, obeying Christ. Obeying Christ. <laughs> so fellowship demands obedience to Christ, and I, I put it in terms of an ongoing activity, keeping his commandments. Keeping his commandments. So I say here, this is the third of the ethical responsibilities that John identifies in this section that serve as evidence of eternal life. John begins this passage by identifying the basic principle underlying the test of obedience. He then identifies two hypothetical situations, one negative and one positive, to, illust to illustrate and apply the principle for his readers. Finally, he concludes the passage by restating the principle, verse 6. All right, the basis for this demand, that is, obeying Christ or keeping his commandments. Let's read verse 3. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. I say the readers can have assurance 
that they have come to know Christ, John declares, if they keep his commandments. John uses the expression, come to know Christ, to refer to those who have entered into a personal, saving relationship with Christ, that is, to come to know him as Lord and Savior. From the larger context, it is clear that this relationship is entered into through repentant faith. And, from the preceding verses, keeping Christ's commandments is parallel to walking in the light. It refers to obeying the moral directives that Christ has given in his word. As before, John uses the present tense in this test to describe those whose lives are characterized by obedience to Christ's commandments. The principle, then, is that the evidence of the saving relationship, this knowing Christ, is found in those whose lives are characterized by obedience to his word. Again, John is not talking about sinless perfection. What John is saying is that those who pass the test have lives characterized by obedience, not disobedience. Now, I'm assuming we haven't gone through this section before. Is that correct? Right. Okay. All right, let's read verses 4 through 6, because he's going to apply this principle to his readers, beginning in verse 4, and then uh, in verse 5, and then restate the principle of verse 6. All right, so verse 3, we just finished reading. Uh, verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. We'll stop there. Let's take a look then at uh, small b, the demand for obedience. Having established the principle, John now gives two hypothetical examples to illustrate and apply the principle for his readers. The first is negative, describing those who fail the test. Those who say they have come to know Christ, but who do not keep his commandments, John says, are lying, and the truth is not in them. Consistent with his previous statements, John uses the present tense to describe the individuals in this illustration. Those who claim to know Christ, and yet whose lives are characterized by disobedience to his word, show their claim to be false. Their habitual disobedience demonstrates that the truth of the gospel has never taken hold within them. Conversely, those who keep his word show that their love for God has been perfected and that they have come to know Christ. John expands the test of obedience here by adding the thought of loving God. Those, who lo those whose lives are characterized, present tense, by obedience to the Lord's word actually demonstrate two things. The first thing they demonstrate is that their love of God has been perfected. By perfected, John simply means that their love for God has reached its goal. Love for God is a gift God's Spirit gives us in conjunction with salvation. The goal and evidence of this love is obedience to God. The Lord himself said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He who does not love me does not keep my words. Hence, by obeying Christ's words, these show that their love of God has reached its goal. The second thing they demonstrate by their obedience to God's word is that they know Christ and thus have assurance of eternal life. Now let's read verse 6. 
that will make some application. The one who says he abides in him ought also to walk in the same manner as he walked. Having illustrated the test of obedience, John restates the principle to reinforce the application for his readers. He restates the principle in the form of an imperative or command. John declares that those who claim that Christ abides in them ought to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. To abide in Christ is another way of describing a saving relationship with Christ. It is a relationship that is ongoing or continuing, abiding, not one that is temporary or transitory. Those who claim to have this ongoing relationship, abiding with Christ, must show the validity of this claim by living as Christ lived. Well, how did Christ live? Well, Christ lived by obeying God's word, and so must all who claim that Christ abides in them. Again, John uses the present tense to describe the walk or life of the one who claims to abide in Christ. As before, John describes a walk that is characterized by obeying Christ and his word. The implication is clear. Those who consistently live in this fashion show that they have a true saving relationship with Christ and gain assurance of their salvation. Those who habitually violate this pattern demonstrate that they do not have this relationship and consequently they do not have eternal life. Now, we've been talking about the test of fellowship or the test of sharing in the life of God. He begins by what kind of conduct passes the test. The first thing he's discussed or presented for us is walking in the light. We define the light there as the light in which God exists. It involves God's truth. It involves God's righteousness. So walking in the light means we walk in the truth of God and in God's righteousness. Then he went and talked about the second test of fellowship in terms of our conduct was confessing sin. And John says that's something we do on a daily basis. In fact, those who do not confess sin give evidence that they don't have eternal life. And then John has just uh, given us this third test of fellowship involving conduct, and that is obeying Christ. Now, I've said last week, and I'm going to say again, that I think these tests are fairly straightforward. I don't think they're uh, difficult to understand, nor do I think they're difficult for me to evaluate, evaluate my own life in light of the test. So here's a question I ask myself. Since he uses the present tense in all three of these activities, is my life characterized by walking in the light, defined as walking in God's truth, walking in God's righteousness, or is my life characterized by walking in darkness, the opposite? Now, as I'm looking at you and you're looking at me, I can say, well, from my perspective, my life is characterized not by darkness, but by God's light. Now, I don't mean by that, well, I, I, I've stopped sitting. I don't mean by that. In fact, I just told you last week, if there's a verse I'm going to wear out, it's 1 John 1, 9. <laughs> I will confess my sin on a daily basis, throughout the day, at night when I go to bed. <laughs> In the morning when I have my time with the Lord, I confess sin. But I can still say my life is characterized, my life is characterized by God's light, not by darkness the overall evaluation of my life. All right, you follow what I'm saying? The second 
confessing sin. I've already, I've already mentioned, yes, that my life is characterized not by denying that I'm a sinner, nor by denying that I have committed sins. My life is characterized by confession. All right? So I can say, if that's the characteristic of one who has fellowship with God, shares in the life of God, then I'm passing the test. By God's grace, I'm passing the test. This last one, obeying Christ. So here's the question I ask myself. Is my life characterized by obedience to Christ or disobedience? Now, I'm not asking, do I disobey Christ? I'm asking, is my life characterized by either obedience or disobedience? And all things being evaluated, the, the scales tip toward obedience to Christ, not disobedience to Christ. So again, these, these tests I don't think are difficult to understand or difficult to apply. I think they're very straightforward. I think the application is what I would call patent or clear. And so I, I would have uh, you do what I've been doing. Uh, I'm assuming you can measure your conduct in light of these three uh, tests of those who have fellowship with God. And I'm assuming, the ones I know at least, I would tell you, you're passing the test. Those of you I know, you are passing the test. Now, since my passing the test doesn't mean I have attained what we call sinless perfection, these tests also challenge me. Well, if, if, if the evidence of fellowship with God, eternal life, sharing an eternal life, means walking in the light, well, I want to continue to walk in the light. I want to continue confessing my sins. I want to continue obeying Christ. Well, see, these, these tests not only help me evaluate and gain assurance of my salvation, they also are an ex exhortation or an incentive to continue to do what John is writing here. It's a wonderful passage. It's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful passage. And the Lord uses it in my life. I want the Lord to convict me quickly every time I sin. I want the Lord to strengthen me in obedience. I want the Lord to build me up and equip me for serving Him. And He's using His Word and this portion of His Word for that very purpose in your life and in my life. Alright? Now we come to the fourth one. <coughs> loving. Here's my loving. Loving believer. Loving believers. And of all the tests involving conduct in terms of fellowship with God, sharing eternal life, this is the one that is the most convicting for me. Perhaps it will be for you as well. Let's see what the test is. This is the fourth of five responsibilities John identifies that serve as tests of eternal life. John introduces this passage by linking this test to a commandment the Lord had previously given his disciples. I've expanded my notes a bit. The Lord's previous commandment serves as the basis for this test. As has been his custom, John next illustrates and applies this test through a series of examples. John begins with a negative example. He gives a positive example. He ends with a negative example. The basis for this demand 
loving believers is found in verses 7 and 8. Let's read those verses. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. But notice what he says now in verse 8. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment. I'm writing it to you, which is true in him and in you. And why is it true in him and in you? Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, I'll grant you, reading those verses raises questions in, in my mind. Well, what is John saying? It's an old commandment. It's a new commandment. It's true in him. It's true in you. The world is passing away. You know, why is already being met? What, John, what are you saying? Let me see if I can unpack what John is saying. Addressing his readers as beloved, John states that the basis for his present test, loving believers, is not a new commandment, but an old commandment that the readers have known from the beginning. That is, from the time of their salvation. So that's what John means when he says, it's not a new commandment, but an old commandment which you had had from the beginning. It means when they were saved, they were taught this commandment. And therefore, it is an old commandment. Old in a sense, it's not something that John is writing that they haven't heard before. It's an old commandment. They heard it when they were saved. All right? John identifies this commandment as the word or message his readers had previously heard. By describing the commandment in this way, John is calling their attention to the quote-unquote new commandment that the Lord had given his disciples. Quote, A new commandment I give to you, this is the Lord speaking, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Let's pause it there for just a moment. So John says this is an old commandment, it's referring to the commandment of the Lord, and it's referring to the words of the Lord when he says to his disciples, I'm giving you a new commandment. It's a little confusing, isn't it? So when the Lord was speaking to his disciples, he's telling his disciples, I have a new commandment for you. And John says, you know, that new commandment that the Lord gave his disciples, you were taught that commandment when you were saved. That's why for you it's an old commandment. The Lord calls it a new commandment, but he calls it a new commandment addressing his disciples when he was alive. It's a new commandment that's being passed on to each generation of believers. John's readers had heard this commandment. In that sense, it's an old commandment. But now we want to pause here also. Let me ask this question. Do you understand why John refers it to an old commandment, although our Lord speaks of it as a new commandment? Do you understand that? All right. So the question is, Lord... Why are you saying love is a new commandment? We find that commandment in the Old Testament, Lord. Why are you saying I'm giving you, my disciples, a new commandment? No fair reading ahead now. (laughs) I think you're kind of getting toward it. Let's read what I have here. The Lord calls it a new commandment, not because love has never been commanded, but note now, but because he was making his love for them the standard. His disciples were to love one another, Jesus says, as I have loved you. Now, in the Old Testament, believers were commanded to love. The Lord says, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another. Well, that's not the new part of it. The new part of it is, as I loved you. That's the new part. 
That was, that's what makes his commandment a new commandment. He's using his love as the standard. His love was not the standard that was revealed in the Old Testament. It was simply love your neighbor as yourself. But it's a new commandment the Lord has given him because he's saying, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. That's what makes it new. Let's go on further. Not only does John call this commandment an old commandment, one that the readers had previously heard, he also calls it a new commandment. He calls it a new commandment because he wants his readers to reflect, again I've edited my notes, because he wants his readers to reflect on what makes the Lord's commandment new and to renew their commitment to it. What makes this new commandment is spelled out in the rest of the verse. Its newness, John declares, is something that is true in Christ and true in them. The newness is true in Christ in that his death on Calvary's cross has demonstrated once for all the true meaning of love, of divine love. If Christ's love is the example to be followed in this new commandment, and it is, then his sacrificial death on Calvary's cross establishes the true measure of that love. This is how his readers were to view the new commandment. They were to love one another as Christ loved them and gave himself for them. Now we're starting to unpack, well, what did the Lord mean when he says, I'm giving you a new commandment, the Lord says that, that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, how has the Lord loved his disciples? By giving his life for them. So this commandment is true in the Lord because his love in giving of himself identifies the true meaning and definition of this love. So that's why we can define this kind of love from the Bible. If I'm loving others as the Lord loved me, loves me, then I'm seeking their well-being even if I need to sacrifice in doing it. Did the Lord seek my well-being when he sacrificed himself on Calvary's cross? Yes. And in doing that, he was loving me. And he's telling us as his disciples, that's how I want you to love one another. I read that and I say, oh Lord, why? I am absolutely selfish at heart. I love myself. I've got to work at loving others. The Lord doesn't give me that kind of wiggle room. And John is picking up that commandment and saying, you know, this is the test of fellowship with God, of sharing in God's life and sharing in eternal life that you love others as Christ loved you. I'll come back to that point. <laughs> this is convicting. However, the newness of this commandment is also true in the readers. It is true in them, John states, because darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Well, what, John, what do you mean by that? As in his earlier statements, John is using light and darkness in a figurative sense. Darkness refers to the falsehood and moral evil associated with sin. That's darkness. Light refers to the truth and moral good associated with the gospel. John's point is that as the readers obey this commandment, in loving others, they demonstrate the reality of Christ's love in them. And as they love others, the love of Christ penetrates more fully in them and through them, dispelling the darkness and revealing the light. The newness of this commandment 
is true in them then, as Christ's love is demonstrated in them and through them in their loving others. I said this is a tremendously convicting passage for me. <clears throat> loving others. <clears throat> Seeking the well-being of others and willingly giving of myself in doing that. Well, I want to love my wife that way. I want to love my children, my grandchildren that way. I want to love other members of the body of Christ where the Lord has placed me. I want to love them that way. It is something that I realize that does not come naturally. That is not something that's native to my soul. The only way I can love others is by asking the Lord to give me that love and to strengthen me to show that love toward others. If someone comes up and asks me, well, how are you doing? Well, I'm glad they asked me that. <laughs> and I'm happy to tell them. But, you know, I have to pause and remind myself, you know, you ought to ask them the same question. I, I, I'm, I'm too fixed on thinking the world revolves around me. It doesn't. And too uh, slow to realize that the world revolves around the Lord and He's told me to love others, not myself, as the sole object or the prime object of my affections. So I've really got to work at that. I don't know if that's true of you. That's true of me. I've got to work at that. It means going out of my way to help other believers. Remember, the context here is believers. Now, it's not that John's saying, don't love the unbeliever. He's just not addressing that. He's talking about loving other believers. I need to, first of all, find out what is the best for them, and I can't do that if I don't know them. You know, if I don't know Eddie Martin, I can't tell, well, what's the best for Eddie Martin that I should be seeking? And I should be willing to give myself to pursue what the Word of God tells me is in Eddie's best interest as I get to know Eddie. This is, this, is a, this is a passage the Lord has used in my life every single time I read it, every time. Of all these tests, this one I have to pause the longest at and ask myself, can I honestly say I'm doing this? Should I ask others if they think I'm doing this? <laughs> or just leave it in my court? I'll make, I'll make the call. This is the test of life, of eternal life. And the reason it is the test of eternal life, because it is the power of the gospel that transforms us. Before the gospel came into our life, we, we, we hated God, and we didn't love others. But God has transformed us through the gospel. I mean, it is a powerful message from God that absolutely creates us a new person and it puts within us a love for God and a love for others and God uses this passage and the prompting of his spirit to stir us to do this now I desperately want 
this truth to be true of me. But you know what? I want this truth to be true of my church. I want people to come to my church and say, wow, there is a group of people that really love one another. I want that. I want to be a part of that. (laughs) And have that a message that the Spirit of God uses to glorify God and to attract others to my Savior and the Gospel. Well, this is a test, and I've bared my soul about how the Lord uses it in my life. Yes, sir. Um, when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, you're saying John just isn't addressing that here. That's, that's what I have trouble with. Loving people in our church is easy because they, they are like that. Yeah. And I have not. Everybody says, how are you doing? I say, fine. And I don't say, how are you doing? Because we're always rushing around. You yeah. not stop and think about it. Right. But is that... You understood my point when I made that illustration. Yeah. But it, uh, as far as loving non-believers, especially where I work, yeah. it's, it's not even fathomable. Well, I mean, we love them by giving the gospel to them. That's how we love the unbeliever. And John simply doesn't address it. I mean, other passages do. But you raise a good point. It's not part of the test for... No. John just doesn't address it, at least at this point. Okay. He's going to say a lot of things later in this letter that are going to be very convicting. You have this, the goods of this world, and you close your heart, affections toward the brother or sister who has a need. Oh, well, God being seen there. Yeah. But you raise a good question. I mean, we find people in the Old Testament asking God to curse their enemy. We have people in the book of Revelation during the tribulation who are saying, Lord, how long before you judge my enemy? To be honest with you, I don't think we, we have that option. The Lord teaches me in terms of my even my enemy, I'm to pray for them. <coughs> that's the Sermon on the Mount you've been taught you love your your neighbor and you hate your enemy the Lord says no you pray for your enemy so that's just something again in those situations I, I have to be reminded and I'll be very candid here I have to be reminded I have a two I have this is me this is me I'm not talking about anybody else here this is me I have too high opinion of myself. I don't have a high enough opinion of others. I don't think of others more highly than I think of myself as I am commanded. I have to ask the Lord for forgiveness about that and strength to overcome that. And I have to ask the Lord, let me see others, Lord, as those for whom you have done it. You love them. You gave your life for them. Help me see them that way. Help me to see them as those who can be transformed by your gracious gospel. Help me. That's something I have to pray off virtually daily because I'm not there. By God's grace and the working of the Word and the Spirit, on occasion I can be there. But apart from that, I'm not there. I don't know if that's... That's one truth for me to hear. All right, let's go on. All right, the demand for love. Let's read verses 9 through 11. The one who says he is in the light 
yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. Verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Verse 11, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Having identified the standard for this test, John proceeds to give three situations or illustrations to apply the test. The first is negative. Those who say that they are living in the light of God's word and yet hate other believers show that they are, in fact, continuing to live in darkness. The expression hate is in the present tense and describes an ongoing attitude of hostility against another, not simply a momentary flash of anger. <laughs> I wish it were that. <laughs> Those who continue to show a hostile attitude toward others and specifically toward other believers demonstrate by this that they have never experienced the love of God through the gospel. Such are still living under the darkness and bondage of sin. Conversely, those who love other believers abide in the light of the gospel, and there is no occasion for stumbling in them. John uses the present tense twice in this statement to describe the continuation of these activities. It is those who continue to love their fellow believers who are thus abiding or continually living in the light of God's word. And because love is a fulfilling of the moral demands of the gospel, those who love have, for all practical purposes, removed anything that would cause them to stumble and fall into sin. Let me park it there for a moment. The Old Testament teaches us, and the Lord draws upon that Old Testament truth and addresses his disciples with that truth, that love is a fulfilling of the law. Let's think about that for a moment. Love is a fulfilling of the law. Well, how is love a fulfilling of the law? Well, if you're loving God and you're loving others, you're doing everything the law requires of you. Everything. So, if you're loving others, you're doing that because you love God. It's, it's implied, not stated. If you're loving others, you're doing that because you love God. You love God, you love others. If you're doing that, there is no occasion for you to sin because you're, you're, you're fulfilling all the requirements that the law requires. Now, I'm going to get into this issue. I'll, I'm not going to get into it tonight, but I, I need to make a, a statement here. And that is, the scriptures speak for practical purposes. As there are two expressions of God's moral law. There's the Mosaic Law, and there's the Law of Christ. Now, I'll get into this later. But you and I are not under the jurisdiction of the Mosaic Law. We don't offer sacrifices, etc., etc. We are under the jurisdiction of the Law of Christ. Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 9, 20, 21. 1 Corinthians 9, 20, 21. So, when, when John is talking about not occasion for stumbling. He's talking about by loving others as an expression of my loving God, there is no occasion for me to stumble and sin and thereby, and thereby trespass or transgress the law of Christ. Because as the law of Moses, so the law of Christ, if I'm loving others and God, I'm, I'm fulfilling every requirement that the law places on me. All right, we'll come back to those 
love Moses' law of Christ, but we'll do it a little bit later in John's letter. Again, John is not describing sinless perfection, but simply a, consi a consistent testimony of obedience to God's word. Such a pattern of love and obedience among the readers demonstrate the reality of God's transforming love in them and give them assurance of eternal life. Pattern of love and obedience. John concludes this passage with a negative example to reinforce the dangers of failing to follow Christ's commandment. John adds that those who hate other believers reside in darkness and are living in darkness. For this reason, these do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. As before, John uses the present tense in the statement to depict the ongoing nature of the activities mentioned. Those who habitually hate other believers continue to reside in the darkness of sin and continue to live in that darkness. As a consequence, their sin has blinded them to their own depravity and the ultimate destination of their lives. The tragedy is that they fail the test of eternal life and are heading toward eternal condemnation and punishment, and they are unaware of where they are heading. All of this serves as a powerful incentive for the readers to love one another as Christ has loved them and to distance themselves from the censure of this verse. So let's pause it here. Well, I like the definition of love by using the opposite, hate. The one who hates his brother is failing the test. Well, I don't hate anybody. <laughs> I'm passing the test. I think it's more than that. I think it's more than that. It would, it would be nice if, if loving others simply meant I'm not hating them. <laughs> I'd love to stop there, but John doesn't stop there. It is true, if I have a continuing, simmering hostility toward other believers, something's desperately wrong. But I think loving others means a lot more than that. As we will see later, if I have the goods of this world and I withhold them from a brother or sister in need, well, that's not loving. I might not be hating them, but I'm not loving them. But right now, we're, we're talking about this issue of hostility. Here's how I would apply it. You know, we, we can, we can uh, find ourselves in conflict with other believers. Well, maybe I can. <laughs> I'll leave you out of it. I'm debating whether to use some illustrations here. <laughs> My wife taught high school for 20 years. And occasion, on occasion, um, she would have to discipline a student. And on occasion, the parents would be upset with her rather than their son or daughter. And on a rare occasion, that created tension. Where the parents perhaps would not talk to us, would avoid us. I don't think that's passing the test. <laughs> that sounds a little bit like a hostile attitude. Now, what, what, what's my responsibility? Well, as a, as a believer, my responsibility is to go to that brother and say, you know, whatever it is that's caused this tension between us, would you please forgive me? 
would you please forgive me? In other words, I can't just simply sit back and say, well, he's the one that's than me. Let him come to me. No. I must go to them and say, I don't know what all is involved here, but our, our relationship is not what I would desire it to be. Whatever I've done, would you please forgive me? And one thing I do with my wife that really works well, I shouldn't probably be saying this on tape anyway. When we have a disagreement, I, I understand that my role as a husband, I, I'm obligated to go to her and initiate reconciliation. I can't wait for her to do it. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the head of the home. So I'll go to her like I would this brother. I'll say, you know, I, I don't know why we uh, got angry or had this disagreement, but, you know, please forgive me. And then I had the words, you know, I'm angry. You know, it's hard not to forgive somebody <laughs> when they're asking you to forgive them and you're saying you're an idiot. I mean, now, hopefully they'll say, you've got it spot on. You're an absolute idiot. <laughs> but then I say to my wife, you know, I'm sorry, honey. Would you please forgive me? I'm an idiot. I've got it written right across my forehead. <laughs> I-D-I-O-T. Capital letters, bold print. That's what I am. Our Lord told, told me if there's aught between me and another brother, even if I'm on my way to worship God, I've got to stop. And I've got to reconcile with that person. Because God is not going to be pleased with my worship if I have not reconciled with that brother. So, John is bringing all of this out. And it's a very convicting passage for me. Let's go on. <laughs> Any questions? Um, as kind of a side, but what about <coughs> doesn't always resolve the issue that came up in the first place? Go ahead. You know what I mean? Whatever the issue was that caused the tension, yeah. just asking for forgiveness doesn't necessarily resolve the issue that brought the tension in the first place. Well, what Which I meant that important. Well, uh, what I meant by that is, you know, whatever I have done that has resulted in this breach, I'm I'm, I'm saying. Would you please forgive me for that? I, I was wrong. Whatever I've done, I was wrong. Idiot is a one-word <laughs> definition of all of that. <laughs> so I am addressing, hopefully, what caused it in trying to get them to forgive me for whatever causes were involved. Does that help? Yeah, I guess. So really, the, whatever the issue was isn't as important as, as getting your Forgiveness, reconciliation. Yeah, good point. Point. All right, let's go on. All right, the last of these conduct issues, and that is fellowship man's separation. So I'll put here separating from the world. Can you see that? Yeah. From the world. This is the fifth of the five ethical or moral test, John identifies in this section as the evidence of eternal life. Before addressing the actual test, however, John begins by expressing his confidence in the salvation of his readers. Following this, he states the test in the form of a prohibition and then gives three reasons to clarify and support the prohibition. All right, John's expression of confidence toward his readers. 
Chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Let's read these. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. All right, John uses several forms of address, little children, fathers, young men, and he seems to be repeating himself throughout the sections. So let's unpack it. Small a, John's expression of confidence toward his readers. Throughout the preceding tests, John has been uncompromising in denouncing those who claim to have eternal life and yet give no evidence of this. John has declared these to be liars, deceivers, imposters, slaves to sin, and under God's condemnation. At this point, John pauses to give his readers assurance that his denunciations are not directed against them. What he has written, he has written for his readers, not about them when talking about those who fail the test. It's for their instruction. He's not talking about their lives as failing the test. The passage itself is highly structured, involving six declarations divided into two parallel sections. Each section begins with John addressing them as little children, and then as fathers, and finally as young men. The first expression, little children, refers to the readers collectively as members of God's family. They're children in God's family. The second and third divide the readers into two categories. Fathers describing mature believers, male or female, and young men describing those recently saved, again, male or female. They're generic terms. The first section starts with John addressing his readers collectively and stating that he is writing to assure them that their sins have been forgiven. The forgiveness refers here refers to their justification, the complete and final forgiveness they have received at salvation. John adds that they have received this forgiveness for his name's sake. Or if you have an NIV, on account of his name. Now I'll unpack this a bit. Name here refers to Christ. When it says his name's sake, it's referring to Christ. And to all that his name means. So when you refer to someone's name, you're referring to all that they are and all that that name represents. To say that the readers have been forgiven on account of his name means that they have received forgiveness on the basis of who Christ is and what he has accomplished for them in his sacrificial death. That's the name. Next, John says he is writing to mature believers to assure them that they know him who was from the beginning. To know him refers to the readers knowing Christ as their Lord and Savior. Furthermore, to say that he was, past tense, from the beginning, reinforces Christ's deity. He existed prior to the beginning of creation. That's the past tense. He was from the beginning. He was in existence at the beginning. Finally, John says that he is writing new believers to assure them that they have overcome the evil one. This describes recent converts who have been delivered in salvation from Satan's power and dominion. The second session also starts with John addressing his readers collectively and assuring them that they know the Father. 
Again, the idea is they're knowing or having a saving relationship with the Father, knowing Him as their God. They know Him as their Father because He has begotten them through the Gospel as His children. John next addresses the mature believers among his readers, restating what he said, said about them in the previous section. They know Christ, the one who existed before creation, in that they have come to have a saving relationship with him through the gospel. John concludes by turning again to the new converts, stating that they are spiritually strong, that the word of God abides in them, and they have overcome the evil one. Again, the thought here is that these have been strengthened spiritually because God's word has taken root in their lives through the gospel and has given them victory over Satan's power and control. So it's interesting that John writes chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. I've said the reason he's writing these verses is to let his readers know when he's talking about those who walk in darkness, when he's talking about those who do not confess sin, when he's talking about those who do not obey Christ and who hate other believers, and those who are not, uh, well, anyway, when they, when he, who hate other believers, he's, 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 he's reminding them or informing them, I'm not talking about you. I'm not saying that those failings or failures are describing you. All right, so that's why he's writing this. He's been uncompromising in his denunciation of those who fail the test, and he wants to give his readers assurance that from his perspective, he is confident that they are passing the test. They are not those who are failing the test. That's why he's writing this. And he uh, uses the description there to make it comprehensive. Little children, all of the readers, collectively. Fathers, those who have been saved for a period of time. Uh, young men, those who have been recently saved. And again, the terms are generic. They would refer to both male and female. All right. Any questions about these verses or why John has written them? All right. We may have time for just a little bit more. Uh, the demand for separation. Uh, let's read verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. All right, the demand for separation. This is the fifth test involving conduct, separating from the world, separating from the world. Having expressed his confidence in the salvation of the readers, John presents the test in the form of a prohibition. He then clarifies and supports the prohibition through three declarations that follow. The prohibition is designed to warn his readers about that which is opposed to eternal life. The declarations that follow are intended to reinforce the danger of what is prohibited and to encourage the readers to heed the warning. John warns his readers that they are not to love the world or the things in the world. What is the world? The world which the readers were not to love refers to the present world system that is under Satan's authority and influence and is dominated by sin. 
all as a consequence of the fall. So let me say that again. The world, which the readers are not to love, refers to this present world system. It's under Satan's authority. He's the prince of this present world. It's under his authority and influence and is dominated by sin. All of this present world system is a consequence of the fall. As such, this present world system is opposed to God and the things of God. Thus, John's prohibition that his readers are not to place their affections on this present fallen world and specifically on the things this fallen world esteems and pursues. So what does it mean not to love the world? It means that I'm not to place my affections on the things of this world as a priority of my life. It's not that I'm not it's not that I that God doesn't want me to enjoy the food he provides or whatever. My affections are first and foremost to be upon God. Or as Paul says in Colossians, put your affections on things above where Christ is, where your life is hid. So I have to ask myself, where are my affections? Are my affections on my Savior? Do I love him first and foremost? Or am I loving the things of this world? That's the issue and that's the test. All right? Uh, I don't know if we can get much further here. Um, Do you want to just take a couple more minutes or do you want to pull the plug? <laughs> Is it time to pull the plug? What's that? Well, it has been an hour, so I'll tell you what, let's mark it here and we'll pick it up here uh, next week. All right, next week. And uh, no fair, uh, no fair uh, taking these pages out of your notebook now. <laughs> Because uh, this is another passage the Lord has used in my life to convict me of sin and to uh, provoke me to uh, separate myself from the world as John is telling me I need to do in terms of where my affections lie. So we'll pick it up here next week.